Market Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Hello and welcome to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Tola Mbakwe. This is the show where we look at a person's life, faith and testimony. It's brought to you in association with the UK's leading Christian magazine, Premier Christianity. If you would like a free copy of the latest issue featuring interviews, features, news, reviews and more, head to premierchristianity.com slash free sample. My guest today is Andrew Brunson. Andrew is an American pastor who lived in Turkey for more than 20 years as a missionary with his wife. He was imprisoned for two years on what religious freedom campaigners say were bogus terrorism-related charges. His detainment drew international attention from world leaders, including U.S. President Donald Trump. Let's take you back to the time when he was just given his life sentence in March 2018. Premier's Cara Bentley spoke with Stephen Carter from religious freedom charity Middle East Concern on Premier NewsHour. This is quite a long-running saga started in October 2016. Um, But yesterday saw a very significant development in that there were formal charges brought for the first time. Up till now, there have been a range of accusations. First of all, when Andrew and his wife were arrested, they were um, accused of being a threat to national security, which is a very uh, vague charge that is uh, sometimes brought. Um, that became more specific over uh, the following months, uh, when Andrew was specifically alleged to have been a part of a terrorist organization linked to a political opponent of Uh, President Erdogan of Turkey. And uh, in yesterday's announcement, the prosecutor uh, confirmed uh, that accusation, bringing formal charges that Andrew was not just a member, but also a leader of this group, um, which is thought by the Turkish government to have been behind uh, the coup in 2016 that um, was put down. So uh, yes, it's a long-running saga, but this represents uh, a formal legal charge Uh, for the first time. And these charges that he was involved in leading a coup, are they justified at all? Absolutely not. And uh, Andrew has continued to vehemently deny any uh, association with this group, any involvement in Turkish politics. Um, As you mentioned, he and his wife have been in Turkey for more than two decades, about 23 years, uh, serving uh, an evangelical church. Uh, They're respected members of their local community, Um, And so these accusations really have become as a a great shock and uh, are wholly denied by Andrew and by the Turkish church more widely. So what's in it for the Turkish officials? Why why would they blame him for this if it's not true? Well, sadly, this seems to be a case um, of uh, a political dispute rather than anything religious. So this is primarily, we think, because of... Uh, the passport in his pocket rather than the cross around his neck. Um, The U.S. and Turkey have uh, very strained relations, particularly at the moment. Um, And in particular, Turkey is uh, seeking the extradition of this political opponent uh, whose group uh, Andrew Brunson has been linked with. Um, That political opponent, Fethullah Gulen, is in the States, and Turkey would like him to be uh, returned to Turkey. So back in September last year, the president of Turkey uh, openly suggested a prisoner swap. He said, we'll give you Andrew Brunson if you give us 
Fatullah Gulen. Of course, the U.S. government has um, refused to enter into that negotiation. But it, as I said, it does seem to reflect uh, primarily a political difference between Turkey and U.S. rather than a specifically religious uh, issue. And has his family had any contact with him at all? Um, absolutely. His wife, Noreen, who was briefly detained um, in 2016 but released after um, 12 days or so, um, she uh, has remained in Turkey uh, and she has been able to visit on a regular basis. So she does have access to Andrew. Um, we understand that Andrew is being kept in reasonable conditions, um, although the whole saga has been extremely disturbing for him and for Noreen, of course, and for the wider family. Uh, so Noreen is there. She is able to visit, uh, but uh, there's a lot of concern, and certainly our prayers are requested for for them as a couple, uh, that they would stand strong through this hugely testing time. And uh, prayer for the wider church in Turkey. Um, although this doesn't seem to be primarily a religious issue, uh, understandably Turkish Christians are, are disturbed by this, um, and it's part of an ongoing uh, tightening up uh, within society. There's an information campaign against Christians in some local media, uh, and so many uh, are concerned at this time, and the treatment of Andrew Brunson is a, a particular focus for that concern. And finally, what's the likeliness that this could be turned around? Well, in some senses, the fact that a formal charge has now been brought uh, could be seen as positive in that judicial processes can now move forward. Up till this point, it's simply been an accusation that he's faced. Uh, he's been held for... Uh, yeah, nearly a year and a half just on the basis of an accusation. But now that there's a formal charge, um, a court will now have to decide whether the case will proceed to trial. Uh, it's expected that uh, it will proceed to trial. That, of course, does provide a, an opportunity for acquittal, potentially. That's what we're praying for, um, although many political commentators warn that there's uh, not a great deal of optimism that Turkey is in the mood to do such a deal at the moment. Um, but, yeah, we're awaiting the next step, which is for the court to decide whether the case will proceed to trial. So now let's hear from the man himself. I spoke with Andrew a year and three months after he gained his freedom. Andrew, so it's pretty surreal, like I said, to be interviewing you because I remember for almost two years reporting on updates of your detainment and then your release. Did you ever imagine that your life as a missionary could be full of so many twists and turns? No, <laughs> the, not at all. Uh, we'd always had interesting things happening. My wife says about Turkey that there was never a dull day. Uh, they weren't all good days, but there was never a dull day. But to be uh, wrapped up, drawn into something uh, that became you know, a huge thing between two countries, uh, it, it's just something I never could have imagined. I'm sitting in a, in a prison cell, and I'm seeing my, my, my picture come up on, on a TV screen or on the front page of newspapers calling me a terrorist priest. And uh, to think that something like that could happen, it, it never would have occurred to me. It was very surreal. So let's take it back all the way to the beginning. In your book, God's Hostage, you talked about how your parents were missionaries and they also wanted the same life for you. Tell me about that. 
Yeah, my parents were missionaries in Mexico, and I was raised there. They took me there when I was two months old. Uh, my mother's dream was that, well, she had seven children, and she wanted all of us to scatter around the world. <laughs> uh, I, I'm the only one who ended up uh, in missions overseas. Uh, but I, I grew up with that, uh, those values and seeing the example of my parents. But that isn't where I received a missionary call. Uh, when I was a, I don't know how many people know about Hudson Taylor, but he was a, a, a very effective, influential missionary from the UK to China in the last century. And uh, when he was an old man, a woman took her two young sons to him and asked him to lay hands on them and set them aside for missions. So he did that. They both grew up to be uh, missionaries. And one of them, when he was an old man, Stanley Soto is his name, my mother took me and my sister to him, said, what Hudson Taylor did for you, I want you to do for my children. So he laid hands on us and uh, asked that God separate us for uh, aside to be uh, missionaries. And from that time, it was in one of my earliest memories, I was three or four years old. Uh, and I always remembered uh, that day because I was not acting up. Uh, I was acting up, and so I got a spanking right after it. And so it was seared in my mind. And uh, from that day, I always had a strong conviction that I was supposed to be a missionary, even during a period in my teen years when I was uh, not at all walking with God. I knew that that's what I was supposed to be. So how did you end up deciding to do missions in Turkey? We spent a year with Operation Mobilization uh, in London. And we saw all these teams uh, coming through uh, who were going out to uh, Muslim countries. And God just put something in our hearts for both of us around the same time that that's what we were supposed to do. I had been planning to go back to Latin America since I spoke the language and the cultures in my heart. Uh, but that's where our focus shifted to the Muslim world. But we did not want to go to Turkey. Uh, when we were interviewed by our mission, they asked us what we thought about Turkey. We said, oh, it's number 20 on our list. In other words, no, there are many other places we'd rather go. Uh, but our, our church uh, asked us to go there, and we went more in obedience uh, than anything else. But after a few years, God really put what we think is he put some of his love, some of his heart for the Turks into our hearts. And from then on, we became very committed uh, and it's not an emotional commitment uh, or some idealized uh, uh, vision of, of the Middle East or of Turkey or just loving the food and culture, although we got used to those. Uh, we love them, actually. But it was more of a, a commitment to see blessing come to that country, to see God's kingdom come. And uh, that is still in our hearts, even though we went through some very difficult things at the hands of the Turkish government. Uh, we spent 23 years there. Uh, by choice and two years by force. And we come out of Turkey saying we still love Turkey, we still love the Turks, and we still want to see God's kingdom come there. So when you say us, I'm assuming you're meaning you and uh, your wife, Noreen. Um, That's right. And so what was life like when you, when you moved there and you started doing missions? How was that going? Well, we, we went to Istanbul, uh, which is a very large city, and we uh, started to study Turkish, and we enrolled at a Turkish university uh, to meet students. We were very young at the time. We were in our mid-20s, and um, we wanted to uh, meet Turkish young people. And so we both studied in Turkish universities, and 
Eventually, we moved to another city called Izmir, which is ancient Smyrna, one of the seven churches of Revelation you can read about in the Bible. And then we began to uh, get involved in church planting, and were involved in a number of church plants over the years, as well as work with refugees. That was a big thing for us, that when the civil war in Syria uh, got really hot, a lot of uh, Syrians came into Turkey as refugees, and these people had been unreachable before in many ways. And now we thought, now, now they've come to us. And so here's an opportunity not only to help them in, in a time of desperation for them, so providing humanitarian aid, but also to tell them about Jesus. And so this is one of the things that attracted the attention of the Turkish government, because a lot of the refugees uh, that happened to come to the places we were, uh, they're Kurdish. And so uh, that the Turkish authorities always knew what we were doing. We did everything openly. Our church plants were out in the open. Uh, but that brought more focus on our ministry, and uh, it's one of the reasons why we were arrested. So throughout your book, you mentioned some situations that would make most people want to give up um, on ministry, even before your detainment. You were talking about how so many other people that you um, moved to Turkey with ended up just going back. Did you at any point before your detainment think, OK, this is not for us? I mean, at one point you said someone even tried to shoot you. <laughs> yeah, so I never said this is not for us. But I did want to leave sometimes. <laughs> uh, sometimes I just wanted to quit. There were many days I just wanted to, to give up. Uh, but we, one, of the, one of the graces that we had, a, a gift to us from God, is we, we had a very strong conviction that that's where we were supposed to be. And since we knew that that was where we were supposed to be, then it was easier to push through some of the hardships. And there, there is high attrition in Turkey. A lot of people do leave. It can be very discouraging. It's the largest unevangelized country in the world. The church is very small. Uh, people are generally unresponsive. Uh, but God had spoken to me in 2009 and said, prepare for harvest. And so I, I felt like we had a very specific assignment we didn't know how to prepare for harvest, but we set out doing that and asking God to show us what steps we should take. But I felt that we had a, a very specific assignment and that there was uh, the promise of a powerful move of God coming in the future. So that encouraged us to press on through difficulties and, and stay faithful to our assignment. There was something that God told you before you and Noreen were arrested. He said, it's time to come home. Looking back now, what did you think that meant and how significant was that? Yeah, well, it came out of the blue. I wasn't at all seeking God for, you know, any messages. It just out of the blue when I was shaving one day and uh, the phrase, uh, it's time to come home. And I was very confused by that because I thought, I am home. I'm here in Turkey. I've been here 23 years. We we don't have any plans to leave. And uh, I wasn't sure that it was God, but it kept echoing in my mind, it's time to come home. It's time to come home. And uh, within three or four days, we were arrested and told we were going to be deported. And then I thought, well, now I know what this means. God was telling me ahead of time so that uh, I would know that he's involved in this. Because when we were first arrested, I thought, wait, this, this isn't possible. We have an assignment to prepare for harvest. You can't kick us out. Uh, we've been here 23 years uh, just investing in this country, and uh, I was grieving over that. Uh, then as they held me in prison, uh, as my 
it, it extended and extended. I thought, well, God, you said it's time to come home. So maybe you were preparing me for this, that there would be something I could hang on to uh, that would encourage me because I didn't know how long that I would be in prison. There was, um, I did not know, I thought they might keep me for the rest of my life. And they actually wanted to give me three life sentences. So there, there was that threat. But I held on to that word, it's time to come home. Of course, I questioned it a lot. I said, this sounds, it has some sense of immediacy, doesn't it? It's time to come home. So how long are you going to let them keep me here? But I held on to that and kept insisting, God, you need to keep your word. You need to make this happen. And after two years and five days, he did indeed bring me home. It took longer than I expected. <laughs> and Andrew, just describe that day that you and Noreen were arrested. What happened? Well, we went to the local police station because they had called us in, the police had. And we thought that it was a routine um, thing to process we had asked for long-term uh, residence visas, which we qualified for, and that would allow us to live in Turkey basically for the rest of our lives. So we thought we were going to pick those up, and instead when we got to the police station, they told us that, uh, that they were going to deport us and that they were going to arrest us and to hold us for deportation. So uh, that surprised us. We knew that it could happen, but it surprised us because we – we really thought we were going to be there the rest of our lives. Uh, then they took us to a deportation center and held us there. They were, it, it was a, not a nice place. There were uh, ISIS prisoners and, and the other cells around us. And uh, they should have let us go within a day or two. That's how long it usually takes them to deport an American. Uh, but they held us and gave us no information. And they cut us, out from, cut us off from any communication. Uh, we saw them turn away the American uh, consul official, uh, turn away lawyers. So uh, they were holding us completely cut off from everything. So we knew that something was going on, that this was not a normal situation. Then Noreen was released after 13 days. And that night they transferred me to uh, another detention center and put me in solitary confinement. And I was there for 50 days in solitary confinement, which was very, very difficult for me. Andrew, what would you say was your lowest point while being imprisoned? Well, there were a number of them. Uh, when I was transferred to solitary confinement and kept that way, that was very difficult. I suddenly became aware that, that there was a, a very strong power <laughs> that was behind this that was holding me. And just a sense of dread. And being in solitary confinement is, is very difficult. Just being nothing to do. There's nothing to read. There was no one to talk with. Uh, just sitting in a, in a cell uh, all day uh, in fear and desperation. Uh, I was put into a very crowded prison later. And that was also a very low point. And I was completely cut off from the outside. So I, I couldn't see my wife. I didn't know if she was even still in the country. Uh, I was accused of being a terrorist. And I was in a, in a cell built for eight people, but there were over 20 of us uh, crowded in there. And just some harsh conditions. And I was the only Christian. And uh, I was 
throughout my entire imprisonment, I was with uh, very strong Muslims the entire time. And just the spiritual environment was very difficult for me. I was very isolated, um, especially, well, by language, nationality, culture, life experience, but especially by my faith. Uh, and I longed to have a, another Christian who could pray with me, who could encourage me or correct me when I had wrong ways of thinking. That was a low point. Another very low point was when I was um, pulled into a Turkish court and they told me that they wanted three life sentences in solitary confinement with no parole. And that felt like a death sentence to me. So there were a number of things like that. And so in those moments, what kept you going? Well, the truth is that the first year especially, I broke. I went into deep despair, and I especially had doubts and questions about God. I felt abandoned. I had run after God's presence for years and had had experiences of His presence. And I assumed that when I was in this very difficult situation, uh, suffering for it for the sake of Jesus, actually, uh, that I would have a sense of presence and of strength and of joy and of grace. Uh, and that's what I had read in biographies before. And so I was very surprised when I didn't have that. I actually felt very weak. I felt broken. Uh, I did not have joy. And I did not sense God's presence for the entire two years. Now, he was with me. He didn't abandon me, but I felt that way. So that, that was a, a very difficult thing for me. And I did break the first year, especially. I went through periods where I really struggled with uh, suicide. Uh, with the, And what kept me going was really my wife. She was allowed to see me once a week or to visit once a week through, um, we would meet through reinforced glass and bars and uh, uh, speak on a telephone. And she would encourage me and uh, tell me that I needed to keep going. Uh, also, knowing that people were praying for me was a great encouragement for me. But it was very difficult, and I almost didn't make it out of that time. But there was then a shift uh, into the second year where uh, God began to rebuild me. And so I, I was very broken. For, for a time. And the second year was also very difficult, but I was went through a period of real brokenness. And then there was a rebuilding process that also brought some healing and strength into my life. So that actually came out of prison stronger than when I went in. And Andrew, you were being accused of terrorism crimes related to the failed 2016 military coup in Turkey. The charges were completely baseless, and you said in your book, sounded so ridiculous that you could actually laugh at them sometimes. What were some of the craziest accusations against you? Well, there were so many. Some of it were kind of funny, is that I was accused of being the head of the Jehovah's Witnesses, <laughs> uh, also of being a uh, Mormon uh, uh, leader, uh, which obviously I wasn't. I'm, you know, I'm not part of those groups. They accused me of being uh, part of an Islamist group that they accused of being behind the coup. I was also supposed to be a um, supporting the PKK, which is a Kurdish terrorist group. And supposedly I helped to plan uh, and orchestrate the, the attempted coup and was involved in that. 
They also said I was the head of the CIA for Turkey. No, wait, head of the CIA for the Middle East. No, then they increased it and said that if I had been successful in leading the coup, then I was going to be, I had been promised that I would be made the director of the CIA. So there were a lot of crazy things like that. One funny one to me was uh, when the newspapers, uh, they said that there was a CIA and Israeli Mossad, the Israeli uh, secret police, that they were planning to assassinate me because I knew where Saddam Hussein's gold was hidden and they didn't want me to divulge this information to the Turks and so they were going to kill me. So there were all kinds of crazy things like that. Mm -hmm. the, the Turkish government knew very well that this wasn't true, uh, those accusations, that I was a military spy and all those things. They, they knew it wasn't true. Uh, and so, but they were using the judicial system uh, as a cover for what they were doing. But the whole time they were, I think they were really trying to intimidate other missionaries so they would self-deport. They were trying to intimidate Turkish Christians. And eventually they also just started using me as leverage. Uh, what was the, the phrase, uh, hostage diplomacy was coined in relation to my case. So they were using me as a hostage to try to gain concessions from the U.S. Why do you think you in particular were targeted? Well, they had to choose someone. <laughs> and uh, I, you know, I, I think there, there, there are two stories to this. One is that whole story of the, you know, the, the intrigues and the propaganda campaign, all the accusations, and uh, then the Turkish economy collapsing because of sanctions imposed on them. The, the, the Economist magazine uh, at one point said I was the most expensive prisoner in the world. And so... Uh, there's that whole story, the human side. And then behind it, I think there's a, a second story that's really uh, the more fundamental story, which is God's story. So I think that whatever the Turkish government was intending to do, uh, God was really using it. Uh, he took what they intended to do to harm me, and he turned it uh, completely around. And so what happened is that there were he raised up a prayer movement. I've been told it was an unprecedented prayer movement focused on one person. And millions of people around the world began praying for me. And this prayer just poured into Turkey. And I, I, I mentioned that God spoke to me in 2009 and gave the assignment to prepare for harvest. And when I was arrested at first, I thought that maybe that assignment was canceled. And then as I sat in a prison cell and it extended and extended, I began to see that Actually, I was on assignment in prison, that that was part of my assignment to prepare for harvest. And God was using my imprisonment as I sat there just weak and, and broken, just barely holding on, to raise up all of this prayer that then was just flooding into Turkey and preparing the place for a powerful move of God. So we need to keep both of those stories that there's there was actually a God story going on behind this. Mm. And... So the book is called God's Hostage, and it was Erdogan who was holding me as a hostage, but, but I think that God was involved in all of it, and when he had accomplished what he wanted, that he caused my release. I'm Tola Mbakwe, and you're listening to my interview with Andrew Brunson. Hear more from Andrew after this. Premier Christianity, for cutting-edge commentary and encouraging stories. Tackling the big issues to help you live out your faith.
copy of Premier Christianity, visit premierchristianity.com slash freesample. Hello and welcome to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Tola Mbakwe. This is the show where we look at a person's life, faith and testimony. It's brought to you in association with the UK's leading Christian magazine, Premier Christianity. If you would like a free copy of the latest issue featuring interviews, features, news, reviews and more, head to premierchristianity.com slash freesample. My guest today is Andrew Brunson. Andrew is an American pastor who lived in Turkey for more than 20 years as a missionary with his wife. He was imprisoned for two years on what religious freedom campaigners say were bogus terrorism-related charges. His detainment drew international attention from world leaders, including U.S. President Donald Trump. The book is called God's Hostage, and it was Erdogan who was holding me as a hostage, but, but I think that God was involved in all of it, and when he had accomplished what he wanted, that he caused my release. Andrew, several U.S. officials fought for justice for you, going all the way to Donald Trump. How did it feel knowing that your name was being discussed in the highest of offices? It was really surreal. Uh, at one point, I had told my wife, you know, if this, if this goes up to the level where the two presidents are talking about me, the president of Turkey and the president of the U.S., then it will be a miracle. And uh, because who am I that that would happen? And then it did happen. The, uh, President Trump invited Erdogan to uh, the United States for a summit in uh, 2017. And he asked for me three times for my release. So it was brought up at the highest level. So that was surreal for me. At the same time, it was very frightening. Uh, it's very sobering because even after the president of the U.S. was involved so directly, uh, they refused to let me go. And they actually held me for another 17 months. Uh, after that summit. So I know that it went up to the highest level, and it wasn't just in the U.S. There were, I think, 98 uh, members of the European Parliament who sent a letter to Erdogan, uh, many members of the U.S. Congress. There were other countries involved. So uh, it's amazing to me what God did in raising up all these people, and I think it's really a, a response to all the prayer that poured out around the world. If Donald Trump was not in office, do you think you'd be free today? I don't know. Uh, I don't know what God's plan would have been, but I do know that he was involved in an unprecedented way. What I've been told by people who know these things is that uh, an American president is very rarely involved directly in negotiations like this. And uh, they will appoint somebody to do it, but they themselves will not be involved. But Trump was involved numerous times from early on requesting my release. And it became a, a real sticking point between the two countries that anything they wanted to discuss would start with a request for my release. And it came to a point where the U.S. Uh, officials would say, we're not discussing anything else until you release him. And so... Uh, Eventually, Trump imposed sanctions on Turkey, which had never, I mean, the U.S. hadn't imposed sanctions on a NATO ally in the past. And so for him to take that step was unprecedented. So would I be out if there were another president? I don't know. I do know that he was very involved and that God used him. 
Andrew, as you probably know, there are many criticisms of Donald Trump from Christians. What's your view of the president and the role of Christianity in his administration and campaign? Well, he has many uh, believers around him. This is something that we have noted, uh, that there are people in uh, various positions who are strong believers, who uh, are evangelicals. And so I'm glad for that. Uh, for the president, what we what we do is pray for him. And whenever we have a chance, uh, we do that. We pray for him regularly as, as a couple, my wife and I do. And I would pray for uh, Obama or for any other American president, given the opportunity uh, if they need it. During the trial, you described how everything from the room to the witness statements to the attitude of the, job, the judge was just set up against you. How did it feel to fight for your freedom in those moments? Well, I, I couldn't really fight for my freedom. I was very aware that we're getting a lot of echo, by the way. Uh, I was very aware that uh, this was not real. It was a judicial process, but the uh, decision would not come from the judges. The decision would be made by one person, and that would be uh, President Erdogan. Because he, he had a long ask list. <laughs> there were things he was demanding from the U.S. behind the scenes. Uh, publicly, he was saying that Turkey has an independent judiciary, and this is completely in the hands of the court. Behind the scenes, they had been uh, making demands for months. And uh, a number of times there was actually an agreement reached, and then the Turkish government at the last minute would uh, make a, more demands, and the U.S. would say no, and then the agreement would fall apart. So I knew that... Uh, the whole court uh, thing that I was going through, the various uh, trial sessions were show trial. That was very frustrating. But I came to the point where I said, well, it doesn't matter how well I defend myself. These are ridiculous charges. Normally, they wouldn't even make their way into a court. These witnesses wouldn't even be listened to. But I said, "My, my goal is not to gain my freedom here because I can't. My goal is to Uh, have a witness. How does a Christian act under these circumstances? How can can I present who Jesus is? And so I was very clear about what we did, why we were in Turkey, that we're there to tell people about Jesus. I I was very clear about that. And I uh, publicly forgave those who were false witnesses against me and explain why I do that. I presented the gospel. And so I was able to have a clear and strong witness uh, in the courts. And that became my goal. Take me back to the moment when you knew you were going to be going home. Well, I didn't know that I was going home until right before I went home. This is one of the things I I spent two years in, in prison But I didn't know it was going to be two years. And that's one of the really difficult things is when we're going through hardship, we don't know if it will end or how it will end. So the day that that I was released actually was a trial day. It was my fourth trial session. And uh, they very quickly moved to convict me. And then sentenced me. So they convicted me of uh, aiding terror groups in Turkey, two different terror groups. 
And then they sentenced me to prison. And I thought, after all of this uh, pressure that's been brought on, on them, after all of this prayer, I'm going back to prison. <laughs> and that morning, I had packed two bags. One bag was in case they released me, and one bag was in case they, they put me in prison again. And so I really didn't know what was going to happen. And so I kind of faded out. I just heard, okay, they've convicted me now of terror. Now they've sentenced me again to prison. And I kind of faded out before the judge. And I'm thinking, I'm, I'm just praying and saying, oh, God, please have them send me back to the same cell so that I don't have to get to know new people. Uh, so I know the routine and, and just kind of really <laughs> going into despair that, that, that I was going to go back into prison. And then my lawyer comes over and says, you're free. I said, what? Free? What do you mean free? He says, well, they've suspended, they've convicted you and sentenced you, but now uh, they're going to release you while you appeal the sentence. And uh, you can leave the country. So then there was a mad rush to get me to, to the airport uh, and onto a, an Air Force plane that took us out of Turkey. So it was a roller coaster of emotion from going into despair uh, being convicted and thinking that I will never get out, to suddenly being released and within 24 hours we're in the States with my children again after two years and at the White House. And so what has life been like since returning to America? It's wonderful to be out of prison. Anything is better than that. Uh, it's wonderful to be with my family again with my wife. We're very close and we're a team. We do everything together to see my children again. We just had our first grandchild and I very easily could have missed that. So I'm so grateful. And it's the little things that we especially missed, uh, having breakfast together, my, my wife and I, or taking walks in a park, sitting on a bench, just talking about nothing. <laughs> and to have that back is, is just amazing. But we we also still have in our hearts the Muslim world, and so we still have a call to that. And we're now we're looking at there has been a healing process, just uh, being restored again, uh, because it was a very traumatic uh, time that we had. And now we're looking again at how how can we be involved in in telling Muslims about Jesus. So that's still the call that we have is still very much on our hearts. And you talked about the healing process. Uh, tell me, how have you found healing, you and your family? Because I'm sure it impacted everyone too. There was a lot of healing that took place the last year of prison. So I, I actually came out much stronger than I would have anticipated. Uh, the healing, I, I think it's a, it's a big question that you could write a book about. Uh, but one of the things that was very important in this was uh, focusing myself on what really most matters, which is that I'm going to stand before Jesus someday and what he will say about my life. And even as I was in despair about prison, thinking I could be there the rest of my life and, and the real sense of loss, of losing my family, my, not seeing my children again or being with my wife again, uh, I came to a point where I could consistently say, God, if this is your assignment for me to be in prison, uh, I don't want to be here, but give me the strength so that I can endure because I want to complete the assignments you have for me. 
It took me a long time to get to that point. And I had to every day fight for it. So I would wake up in the morning with despair and fear, and I would begin this fight. Okay, God, I want to serve your purposes. I don't have the strength. Give me strength to persevere. And uh, by the end of the, of the day, usually I would have reached that point of, of surrender, of embracing uh, God's purposes rather than my own. And I would have a measure of peace. But then I'd wake up the next morning with the same despair and fear and start that battle over again. So the previous day's victory didn't carry over completely. And uh, so every day there was a battle, but there was an upward trajectory over time. And that uh, became my focus uh, every day to surrender myself to God. And over time, that that uh, brought uh, a real fear of God, a, a commitment, a different perspective, more of a perspective of eternity, even though it was very difficult. My feelings were, were a mess. Another thing was uh, all of the questions and doubts that I had, were, they were suffocating my relationship with God. And at one point, I, I uh, visualized a lockbox, and I, I put my questions and doubts, I visualized putting them in there and locking that box. And I, I said to God, you and I are the only ones who can open this. If you want to open this box and take out these questions and doubts and deal with them, then you can do it. But I make the decision that I will not entertain these doubts and questions anymore. And I do not need to have answers to my questions to have a relationship with you. And so this, I was being suffocated before by these doubts and questions, and this uh, stopped it so that then I was able to receive, begin to receive from God again. So really, it was it was a surrender, a commitment uh, that I was going to devote myself to seeking Him, uh, quite apart from my emotions. And will you and Noreen be going back to the mission field? Well, we it's still very much on our hearts, and we're right now we're looking for ways that we can be involved. Uh, we cannot go back to Turkey at this point. We would like to someday be able to go back and see the amazing work God is going to do there. Uh, but yes, that's that's our goal is to be involved in missions. So if Turkey were to clear your name, you would go back? Yeah, it's not a matter of clearing my name so much as this regime. Uh, well, I couldn't go back at this point. I would be put back in prison or I would be killed by there was such a propaganda campaign against me that I became a very hated man across the country. And so at this point, I simply can't go back. But at some point, uh, things will change in Turkey, I believe. And I hope at that point that we can go back. Andrew, have you questioned God on why all this had to happen? Uh, sure. <laughs> I had. It was a huge struggle for me in prison. Uh, but I also have and I said, there's the two stories, the human story and then the God story. And so I can see uh, how God was using my imprisonment, not not just to do things in me. Uh, I don't believe that God causes all our hardships, but certainly he uses our hardships. And I see how he, what, what I say is that the Turkish government stole two years of my life, but God has redeemed it. So I know that he has used my imprisonment in a way that 
I could never have dreamed of. And so many people around the world suffer for their faith. They suffer for Jesus Christ. Most of them uh, are not known. They don't have people praying for them. Uh, they're anonymous. God doesn't forget them, <laughs> and he will reward them. Uh, but many of them do not receive any of that until they're in heaven. Whereas for me, I feel like God uh, has given me the privilege, which is also a healing thing, to see how he used my, uh, my suffering for his purposes. So all these people who prayed for Turkey, I, I think is, that prayer is going to change the country. So I, I can see, yes, I can see that he used it. And I can say also that we have no regrets. Noreen told me, if we go through this in the right way, then at the end, we will have no regrets. Of course, we didn't know when it would end or if it would end. But we can say, yes, we have no regrets. Do you have any advice for people that are thinking about going into missions? Yes, this is the time for the Muslim world. Uh, God is doing powerful things in the Muslim world, and as many, many people there are going to turn to Jesus. There is a cost uh, to standing for Jesus, and it's not just for people who go into missions. One of the things that's really on my heart right now is uh, the next generation, my children's generation. They're in their uh, the youngest is 18, the oldest is 24. And I think that it's becoming more difficult to stand for Jesus. The, the culture, the societies we live in in the West are becoming more hostile toward those who very clearly stand for Jesus and for his teaching. And so there is increasing pressure. People can lose their jobs. And I think it's going gonna, it's gonna to increase uh, over the next years. Uh, are people willing to stand for Jesus, even if it costs them. And so I did not choose to become uh, an example, but God made me an example. This is what I am known for in, in Christian circles, is that I suffered for, for Jesus and that I was faithful to him. And so uh, missionaries will face hardship, but so will... <laughs> So will believers in the UK, so will believers in the United States, if they, if they stand for Jesus. And how would you say we can best support Christians who are suffering for their faith? Pray for them. Uh, if, you have, if, you, if you know them, encourage them. Uh, one of the things that really took me through was, was prayer. Uh, I didn't feel it. Uh, I want to stress this was... Uh, I did not feel joy or strength during my time in prison. And there were many people praying for me. I did have grace, but it was an unfelt grace. But knowing that people were praying for me, that I was not alone, even though I was alone physically separated from, from all other Christians, I didn't have contact with other Christians. I was only Christian in prison. I knew that there were brothers and sisters around the world who were standing with me, and that was so encouraging to me. And so how often do you pray for persecuted Christians now? Is it more than what you were doing before you were detained? Well, when I pray for them, I certainly do it with more empathy and understanding. And uh, what I pray for them, I, I'll, I'll just say especially what I uh, prayed for myself and for my family uh, so many times when I was in prison. I asked, I asked God to pour into them the strength and the courage and the confidence 
the endurance, perseverance, and steadfastness of Jesus. So just to pour the spirit of Jesus into them so that they will run the race set before them and finish well, that they'll be purified in the fires of faithful obedience and be found worthy of Jesus. And so, uh, so many people don't finish well. You know, they, they start out with a lot of fire or enthusiasm. Many people are not faithful over the years. And so for those suffering, those who are in prison, those who are, and there are many other kinds of hardship people face uh, because they're believers. I, I pray that they endure and are faithful. Great. Thank you, Andrew. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Uh, there was one, one verse that was my theme verse in prison. Uh, it was Isaiah fifty ten, and it says something like this. For the one who walks in darkness and has no light, let him trust in the name of his God and lean on him. And I felt that I was in darkness. I didn't sense God's presence or hear his voice. I was very alone, isolated. Uh, but this was a time to learn to stand in the dark. And the interesting thing about that verse is that God is speaking to people who are in darkness, and he could remove the darkness and give them light. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he says, when you're in the darkness and have no light, then lean into him. And so for your listeners who are going through difficulties, and everybody will, everyone will be tested. Everyone will go into the valley of difficulty. Uh, you need to stand. You need to lean into God and endure. And I said many times in prison, I said to God, you picked the wrong, wrong man for this. I can't do this. I, I just am a failure. I, can't, I cannot handle this. But then I, I came to a point where I, I changed what I was saying. And I no longer said, you picked the wrong man. I said, God, maybe you picked the right man because you wanted a weak man who could be an encouragement to other weak people. So I was weak. But even in my weakness, I chose to turn my face toward God. And we all have that choice. No matter how difficult your situation is, you can choose to turn to God. And if we do that and lean into him, uh, then he, he will give us grace to endure. So I, I want to encourage your listeners with that. Press on. That's all we've got time for on The Profile this week. Join us again next week.